This is Maggie Jones and Natural Wonders. Those of us who love wild things and wild places stand on the shoulders of so many giants. I want to bring them to life for you. That's my main motivation in discovering and reading to you these great stories I find each week. Here today we have four of these people. I'm going to read again from a book called Hammerstrom Stories, published in 2002, after both the Hammerstroms were gone. This book gave an opportunity for 90-some friends, family members, gaboons or interns, neighbors, fellow scientists, people from all over the world who were in their orbit, to tell recollections, sometimes laugh-out-loud funny stories, about this unusual and remarkable pair of biologists who pioneered fieldwork and teaching through fieldwork. They integrated all of it into their daily lives near Plainfield, Wisconsin, in the Central Sands. Last week, I read one of their young Gaboon's recollections, Dale Golick, who started working on one of their field research projects when he was 14. I hope you'll look up the archives of this program on the WDRT.org website. There are many great stories to be enjoyed, most all revolving around our Wisconsin landscape and people. As always seems to happen when reading about the Hammerstroms, we also find Aldo Leopold as a central person in their lives. Fran was the only woman to get a graduate degree under Leopold and Frederick, or Hammy, got his doctorate under Leopold. They were close friends. In the early pages of Hammerstrom stories, Elva, their daughter who edited this book, tells about finding a letter tucked into a book, the letter written by Leopold to his good friend and contemporary, Herbert Stoddard. This is one for you archers out there. Perhaps you make your own bows. I must tell you a little bit about the recipient of this letter, Herbert Stoddard. I'll get to the letter presently. Stoddard is worthy of more than this brief introduction. He was born two years later than Leopold in 1889. He died in 1970. I imagine what a blow it must have been to him to learn of his friend's death at age 60 in 1948. I'll read a little bit from Wiki about Stoddard. While Aldo Leopold is often regarded as the founder of wildlife management, Leopold himself thought that distinction belonged to Stoddard by remarking, Herbert Stoddard in Georgia started the first management of wildlife based on research, unquote. Stoddard was a taxidermist. He received his first professional break when a hippopotamus owned by the Ringling Brothers Circus died in Baraboo, Wisconsin. The Ringlings were friends and hunting partners of Oshner, who was a taxidermist and teacher of Stoddard. Alfred Ringling contacted Oshner, who in turn decided that it should be transported to the Milwaukee Public Museum. Being such a large animal, Stoddard stuck around for a week to assist the head taxidermist for the Milwaukee Public Museum, George Shrewsbury, with processing the animal for transport. Shrewsbury was suitably impressed with Stoddard's enthusiasm and offered Stoddard the job as assistant taxidermist in March of 1910. Realizing that museum work would likely keep him indoors for more time than he fancied, Stoddard began thinking about a career shift 
that focus more on being a field naturalist with an emphasis on birds rather than taxidermy. He helped found the Inland Bird Banding Association during the 1922 meeting of the American Ornithologists Union and began bird banding during his travels for the Milwaukee Public Museum. This led to a number of publications in ornithological journals. Stoddard communicated several rare bird records for the state of Wisconsin, including the first definitive specimen of the European starling in 1923. In 1955, Stoddard initiated a study of birds killed by the recently erected WCTV transmission tower in northwest Florida. TV and radio towers were known to kill large numbers of birds, so Stoddard set out to document total numbers, species, timing, and spatial distribution of the kills. Almost daily for 28 years, Stoddard, his assistant Robert Norris, and others visited the cleared area below the tower to pick up bird carcasses, primarily songbirds, and record data. Stoddard often did this by scanning the area from the open top of a Volkswagen Beetle. Stoddard's bird study documented mass kills of birds that collided with the guy wires and the tower itself. In one instance, Stoddard documented the death of over 800 birds on September 19, 1962. Over the length of the study, over 44,000 individual birds were collected representing 186 species. Many valuable insights were gained from this study, including the documentation of several rare species migrating through the area that were previously unknown, as well as the factors that affected the rate at which birds incur mortality. Man-made structures remain one of the largest causes of mortality for songbirds in the United States. And I'll stop reading Wiki now. I will read a letter discovered by Hammerstrom's daughter, Elva, written by Aldo Leopold to Herbert Stoddard from the book Hammerstrom Stories. Elva says, to introduce, Tucked in front in Hammy's copy of Aldo Leopold's Game Management, I found this wonderful letter. It's dated March 26, 1934. Dear Herbert, I'm sending you by express a U-bow, which I have been making for you this winter. I've enjoyed it because it was a way to express my affection and regard for one of the few who understands what you bows and quail and mallards and wind and sunsets are all about. I cannot assure you that it is a good piece of wood. Staves, like friends, have to be lived with in many woods and weathers before one knows their quality. The fact that the stave is you has a specific gravity of 0.432, came from Roseburg, Oregon, and has been waiting for a job since 1930, is no more a test of how it will soar an arrow than the fact that a man is a naturalist, weighs 160, and has had time enough to season, is a test of the zest or nicety with which he will expend his powers in the good cause. All I can say of this bow is that its exterior education embodies whatever craft and wisdom is mine to impart. What lies inside is the everlasting question. The bow is built for endurance rather than speed, hence the length. Its weight in a cold cellar 
is 50 pounds at 28 inches. This ought to temper down in your climate to a heavy American or light York. I doubt if it will hold on the gold at 100 yards, but it might. Should you use it regularly for York, I would advise a lighter string. If it proves a good piece of wood, it should be retillered after a season's use to catch up any hinge which may have by then have developed. I will be glad to do this for you. At that time, should it have proven a worthy stick, it may also be shortened to make a straight hunter or a York. I've tried to build into this bow the main recent improvements in bow design, but since some of them are not visible, they will bear mention. The square cross-section and wasted handle are, of course, visible innovations, but probably less important than the new location of the geographic center. In former days, this was put close under the arrow plate, but in this bow, it lies as near the center of the handle as is possible without overworking the lower limb. In a three and a half inch handle, I have found this spot to be one and a half inch below the arrow plate. Some authorities make it one and three quarter, but I know from observation that these two modern bows never appear at two successive annual tournaments, or if they do, they are on crutches and ready for premature pensioning to some idle peg on the bow rack. The horns whence came these knocks were pulled off the skeleton of an old cow on the Santa Rita Ranges by Dave Gorsuch. The slight flaws at the base of the upper knock are the measure of the seasons which bleached her bones before Dave found her. I doubt not that many a black vulture perched on her skull, meanwhile, and many a quail and roadrunner, coyote and jackrabbit, played their little games of life and death in the hackberry bush hard by her withering hide. Did the stodgy old cow, whilst living, know or get any satisfaction from knowing that within her growing horns she was converting her daily provender of desert grandma and sun-dried mesquite into an enduring poem of amber light? Does an eagle know or get any satisfaction from knowing that in his incomparable pinions he is converting carrion into a structure so perfect that every breeze sings its praises? Does a yew tree glory in fashioning from mere soil and sunlight a wood whose shavings curl in ecstasy at the prospect of becoming a bow? Does a cedar's pride lie in his towering height? Or in the fact, unknown to all save archers, that under his shaggy bark lies a snow-white wood that planes with the joyful sound of tearing silk, the sound that bluebills make when they hurtle out of the sky at the invitation of placid waters. These are questions meet for an archer to ask, but for no man to answer. One cannot fashion a stave without indulging in fond hopes of its future. I hope this one will one day sire a litter of six golds for you, and will many a time hear your gleeful chuckle as you add up the ends for a five-hundred score. On many a thirsty noon, I hope you lean it against a mossy bank by cool springs. In fall, I hope its shafts will sing in sunny glades where turkeys dwell, and that one day some wily buck will live just long enough to startle at the twang of its speeding string. And lastly, if the bow breaks, with or without provocation, 
Pray waste no words or thoughts in vain regret. There are more staves in the woods than have yet sped an arrow, all longing to realize their manifest destiny. Just blow three blasts on your horn and I will make you another. Yours as ever, Aldo Leopold. And that's the end of my reading from Hammerstrom Stories. This is Maggie Jones and Natural Wonders. Thank you for listening.